Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. It was the spring of 2015, and I was was told recently that we would be expecting our first child, and it's Kaysen. I mean, if you know Kaysen. Uh, I was I was scared to say the least. I was excited, and I had a multiple different um, emotions run through me at that particular time, and and um, it was on my mind a lot getting to that point where Casey uh, would enter into the world, and so. I remember just kind of having a couple of sleepless nights and not really necessarily sharing that with my wife, but these questions ran through my mind about, okay, first off, your life is going to completely change and it'll change forever. You are going to have this little person that will eventually grow up to be a bigger person that's now being a part of your family. You are no longer a younger married person, uh, however you want to define it, one that doesn't have kids. And so um, the questions such as, how am I going to provide for this child? How am I going to love this child like it deserved to be loved? And how am I going to train this child to be a child of God? God were all running through my mind. And there was a lot of anxiety that, that came about during that particular time period. But I remember when Kaysen was, was, was born and he was standing in, I was standing inside of that hospital room, it seemed as if like all of those fears just kind of dissipated. As I saw this lovely, little, healthy boy that was helpless crying, but recognizing the fact that God has given that little boy into our family for our care. And if God has blessed us with it, we know that God is going gonna to provide us through. Now, I say all that to say this. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden my parenting was, was fully arrived and I knew everything to do when it came to parenting a child. No, I'm still learning today. And there has been a lot of times where parenting has been the source of some frustrations and, 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 and great frustrations, as to say, in my life of just trying to how, how to train this person and the way they should go and not always know the right answers in doing so. And some of you that are parents, well, I should say all of you that are parents have, have shared that at some point in your life. And so, you know, what does the Bible say when it comes to raising your child? Perhaps you are a parent of a younger child and, and, and you know that your child is going to eventually go into school and they're going to encounter some different things in school. And how do you parent your child into the way of the Lord over issues that are not clearly laid out in Scripture? What if your, your child decides to just walk completely away from the Lord? How are you going to deal with that as a parent? On the flip side of that, uh, perhaps that you have no kids yet, but you're on the brink of what some would refer to as adulthood, but yet you're still in this like awkward tension between listening to your mom and dad and honoring your mom and dad, but yet you're still an adult, and so you're kind of wrestling with how you're going to function in society after, after you, know, you become a full adult, or how do you manage the... Let me put it this way. Let's say that you are married, but yet your, your family, it's, it's difficult to kind of break ties. Like, how do you manage between the honoring of your mom and dad and also at the same time doing what God has led you to do? These are all questions that we all have to deal with. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in this next section of Ephesians. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Last week, we concluded in Ephesians chapter 5 with Paul's focus on the marriage relationship. He lays out really what I would believe is the primary foundation, <coughs> the primary relationship when it comes to earthly relationships, and that's the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. We looked at how that is a beautiful, wonderful picture between Christ and his relationship to the church, and how it is so important for us to stay faithful to our spouse, because in a spiritual standpoint, we ought to, we must stay faithful to the Lord. 
And how we see throughout the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites turned their back on God, you would see the prophets refer to them as harlots and adulterers, and how he compared that to this spiritual adultery to a physical type of adultery. And so the marriage is constantly under attack by Satan because that is, because really the implications that it has regarding our spiritual life and the relationship between Christ and the body of Christ. And so he lays all of this out, and we looked at how a woman is, is ought to respect her husband, and a husband is ought to love his wife. We see that a, hair, a healthy marriage relationship can be summarized in really two words, and that is love and respect. I focused more on the ladies last week, not because they needed more help, but honestly, I ran out of time. And so I'm going to take some time this morning to go over the men's side a little bit more before we jump into the kids. But just as a way of review... When it comes to uh, the ladies and showing respect to their husbands, uh, we can we can think about it in six different ways, and all of these words spell that word uh, chairs. And so, first off, when it comes to a lady showing respect to her husband, we think of this word conquest. We are appreciating the ladies are appreciating his desire to work. A woman that believes in her husband and she listens to his work stories that shows respect to her husband, and the husband feels that way. We see this word hierarchy and how. A woman appreciates his desire, a husband's desire to protect and provide for the family and not ever comparing a husband's income to the income of another person and, and, and maybe the lifestyle of, a, of another lady or another family. Don't ever compare that to yours because you have no idea the implications that that has upon the heart of a husband that seeks to provide for his family. We think about authority and appreciating his desire to serve and lean inside, appreciating his desire to analyze and counsel. And I understand. I don't fully understand because I'm not a lady, but I get it. Sometimes ladies just want to express uh, something that is happening in their life, and the last thing they want their husband to do is fix it, right? Uh, but ladies, uh, I guess relish in those moments because the husband isn't doing that to be hateful. He's doing that because he loves you and he cares about you and he's trying to counsel you. But don't worry, we're going to get to the husbands in just a few moments. Ladies, you appreciate his desire for shoulder-to-shoulder friendship. We think about this word relationship, right? And husbands, they might like to go out and go go go-karting every once in a while, and that's the last thing you want to do. But go out and do that with him because your husband desires that shoulder-to-shoulder friendship. And then finally, we think of that word sexuality. Of course, God has created man with a desire for intimate relationships, and so a wife uh, respects and honors that. But when it comes to men, God commands the man to love his wife as himself. We, talked, we looked at last week at how um, Jesus or God uses this comparison between Jesus and his sacrifice for the church family and how we ought to love our wives because why? Jesus gave himself sacrificially for the church ultimately so that the church can be without blame and without spot and without blemish. And how this relates to the husband is the husband is supposed to sacrificially love his wife not so that the relationship can be easier or not so that, let's be honest, the husband can get what he wants physically but ultimately for the holiness and the sanctification of the wife. Our goal as a leader of the family is for the holiness and the sanctification of our family, especially our wife. And so when it comes to the husband, we looked at six key points very quickly, and all of these spell this word couple. First off, you think about this word closeness. Your wife wants to be close to you. Hold her hand. Hug her, show affection without any kind of return uh, with that. Focus on her, make it a priority to spend time with her. Do the things that she likes to do. Suck it up and go shopping every once in a while. Unless you like to go shopping too, then that's a win-win for both of you. Be open with your wife. Your wife wants you to be open with her. Um, 
buck against what society says in the fact that men should not share their feelings and share your feelings with your wife. Allow your wife into your mind. It is not less manly to be open and it is not less manly to cry in front of your wife when God has broken your heart. There's nothing wrong with that. Your wife desires that. We think about this, this, this word understanding. Again, going back to what we said earlier, husbands, when your wife does open up to you, don't try to fix her. Don't try to fix the situation. Just listen to her. Sometimes she just wants you to sit there and listen. Try identifying with her feelings and empathize with her. Don't interrupt her when she's sharing things with you. Express your appreciation for everything that she does. Peacemaking. There are times where your wife wants you to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, honey, for how I treated you. Allow her to vent her frustrations and don't get angry at her and close her off. Admit that you were wrong and apologize by saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then there's this word loyalty. Your wife needs to know that you're committed, speak highly of her in front of others and the kids, get involved in things that are important to her, help with her with children, be on her team. Don't ever make jokes about other uh, women or anything for that matter, as innocent or as joking as it may seem, you have no idea the implications that they may have on your wife's uh, heart. And I mean this with respect, but generally speaking, the wife is insecure about her looks and about how she can please you as your wife, generally speaking. And so what do we do in those scenarios? Men, our job is to reinforce her confidence. And then finally, esteem. Your wife wants you to honor and cherish her. Tell her how much you love her. Be physically affectionate with her in public. Hold her hand and choose your family over guy things um, and video games for that matter. Choose your family. Choose your wife. I'm not saying that there aren't times for those things. Do that, but choose your wife. Now, you may be saying, Pastor Brandon, it's great. I appreciate what you shared, and you may have went home last week and say, listen, I've done this before. I've been down this path before. I've tried it before, and it fails time and time and time again. It consistently fails. My wife or my husband continues to treat me the way that I don't desire to be treated, no matter how much I love them. What do I do? To be honest, Pastor Brandon, I am just tired of trying with my spouse, and I'm just afraid that no matter how hard I try, it just isn't going to work. And can I encourage you this morning, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. There's four things that you can write down this morning that will encourage you to keep trying. If you feel like your spouse just isn't changing the way that you desire for them to be changed, don't, you know, first off, don't focus on, on their changing. You continue to work on yourself. But I would encourage you to do this. First off, make a list of all the things that you love about your spouse. Chances are the things that you've married your spouse for that you loved haven't changed. Maybe they're just a little bit more hidden than they were beforehand. But make a list. My wife cooks for me when I get home, and she feeds me. She takes care of me. She buys clothes for me. Make a list of all those things and praise God for it. Secondly, the other thing you can do is look for slight improvements. Maybe your husband uh, isn't doing everything that he should be doing around the house, but at least he took the time to fix the leaking faucet. Or wife, uh, maybe your wife is having a headache more often than you desire for her to have a headache, but at least she's not as negative as she may have once been. Look for those slight improvements and praise God for it. 
Number three, continuously pray. Don't ever stop praying. The scripture says, never says to stop praying. Continue to pray because as you continue to pray, what will happen is your heart will be more in tune with God, as we've talked about before, but you will also be softer to the person that you are praying for. It's really hard to hold a grudge on somebody or towards somebody that you're praying for. And then finally, never give up, as I mentioned earlier. Never stop trying. Keep going forward. So you allow the Holy Spirit room to convict and to grow your spouse. Remember, your primary goal for them is not to change, to make your life easier, but for them to grow in their sanctification. Now, once the marriage has a good foundation, Paul focuses on that first. He then shifts to... If God blesses your family with children, to focus on that, because that is really what I would say is secondary. You have to have a good foundation in your marriage, and then everything else within your family will fall into place. But the most important thing from an earthly standpoint is a relationship with your spouse. And so the Apostle Paul focuses first on this parent and child relationship. He looks at the relationship between the children and the parents, and then he flips that and looks at the parent and their relationship to the children. And so we see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses. Uh, 1 through 4, and we will read that together here this morning. The Bible says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, this message is different than it was last week because not everybody in our room is married. But everybody in our room today is a son or a daughter. You may not have children yet, but most people, maybe you, you, both of your parents have passed away. I don't think that that's the case with everybody in this room. I think most people have at least one living parent. And so even if you're out of the home, even if you're married and you have your own family, there are still biblical principles here of how we must interact with our mom and dad. And I don't think I'm naive in saying that there, are, that there may be some sort of tension taking place with some families here. Maybe you have some things back at home with your mom and dad and you're not quite sure uh, how to handle that. Or maybe, or maybe you have your mom and dad living in the same house as you and it's created tension within your family. And so there's, there's a lot of things to consider regarding this scripture passage and there's a lot of truth within just these four verses here. And so I would beg of you, Let's listen and let's pay attention to God's word here together this morning. So the title of our message this morning is God's Instructions for Healthy Parent-Child Relationships. The words contained within verses 4, or the first four verses here, are nothing profound. There's nothing deep about this. Matter of fact, you probably don't even need me to come up here and preach about it because you can read them and say, that's pretty straightforward. But nonetheless, I've, through God's grace, uh, I, I ask that he would help me to help steer your thinking in the direction in which God's word is telling us to do. And so first of all, we're going to look at this child-to-parent relationship. The child-to-parent relationship, verse 1, is pretty straightforward. This command, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now, there are two different levels that take place when it comes to the child-parent relationship. And the relationship operates, first off, a certain way. When a child is young and is living at home and it changes when a child grows up and leaves the home, when this shift takes place, it has both biblical as well as cultural implications. But the question is, when does that shift take place? Now, it's awkward here because there's some college students. All right, so am I considered an adult now? Am I not an adult? Society says I'm an adult, but yet I'm still kind of underneath my parents' care. They're still paying for my college bill. How do I function? Okay, society says that once I'm 18, I can leave the home, but if you're still living at home, how am I supposed to function? There are others right now 
There are adults, and because of your life situation, you still live at home. How do I function? Do I need to listen to my mom and dad and clean my room when they tell me to clean my room? And I'm 45 years old, okay? Whatever. Like, how do we determine this? Well, the scriptures actually, first off, from a biblical standpoint, tell us or indicates that an adulthood begins at the age of 20. You say, Pastor Brandon, where do you get that from? It goes back to the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 14, God pronounces this judgment on the Israelites, specifically that were 20 years old and older because they've refused to believe God, even after all of his signs and wonders. If you look there on the screen, the Bible says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from what? 20 years old and above. So what the Bible indicates here within the Old Testament is that anybody that was 19 and below were not held to the same accountability as those that were 20 and above. There seems to be an indication that under the age of 20, you are still considered a child, according to the scriptures here. We see in other uh, scripture references, such as Exodus chapter 28, verse 26, Numbers 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 17, Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, that only people who were 20 years and older were included in the census. And that census was specifically for military purposes. In other words, the Bible says there in the Old Testament that those that were 20 and above could be counted in order to fight in the military. Those that were under the age of 20 would not be counted. Therefore, they could not fight in the military. Now, that's biblical, but we understand in Scripture that there is nowhere in Scripture dogmatically where it says that once you turn 20, you are considered an adult. We don't see that in Scripture specifically. There's other cultures that say that once you are married, then you are considered an adult. There's some in here that are over the age of 30 or 40 years old that aren't married. And Are you considered not an adult? Absolutely not. Our society tells, you, tells us that at the age of 18, you are considered an adult. You can go and you can vote. You can legally get married without your parents' permission, so on and so forth. And so how do we take culture and Bible and mesh it all together? And here's the point. When it comes to this concept of verse 1, John MacArthur notes that the Greek word for children found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 is a general term for children, and it is not limited to a specific age group. It refers to any child still living in the home under parental guidance. That is what is considered a child. Now, I understand, again, that there are certain situations in which a child who is an adult comes under the scenario in which they must live in their parents' home due to the inability or taking care of their parents, uh, so on and so forth. But in that level of respect, there has to be a level of respect within the home, but you are not underneath the parental guidance of your mom and dad. You're not under that, so you don't have to obey them. Now, I do want to make a side note and just uh, have you to consider the moment in which you ought to move out and do the things on your own. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I am here to kind of push your thinking a little bit more. If you have the means and the ability to move out on your own and to branch out from underneath your mom and dad, I would challenge you to do so. If you have the means to do that. But again, as we continue on studying in Scripture, what does obedience look like for a child to their parents when it comes to those that are still living in the home, even if you're 18, but you're still underneath the roof of your parents and they are still paying for your groceries? Guess what? You are still considered a child and therefore you must follow the principles of the Word of God. Now, I understand there's this weird age with college students. You're like 21, 22, 20 years old. 
Um, I do believe there's room for grace, but I would challenge you with this. If you are going to college and you're still supported by your family and they're paying for your tuition and they're paying for your room and board and they're supporting you, then there needs to be a level of respect and obedience that would be greater than if you were on your own supporting yourself because you're still underneath the care of your mom and dad. And so when it comes to disobedience, how are we supposed to obey? I think there's a patch to pirate song that was actually built a whole song on this, and that is three levels of obedience, right? Doing what you were told immediately when you were told and doing it with the right attitude. This goes, according to the scriptures, for any command that your mom and dad give, no matter what, no matter when, unless it directly violates the word of God. You obey that. But you may say, Pastor Brandon, you have no idea how difficult it is to obey my parents like we discussed last week with this whole aspect of submission. Maybe you do have controlling parents and you're still underneath their roof and it's like they are just not understanding. According to the scripture, you still have to submit to their authority even though it doesn't make sense. Why? Because honestly, that's what God commands and that is the structure in which God lays out. You are not ultimately submitting to your parents for the sake of your parents. You're ultimately submitting to your parents because you're submitting to the Lord. And that's what this whole entire chapter is talking about. Pastor Bryce kicked this off several weeks ago at the end of... Um, I think it was the end of chapter 4, where he talks about this submitting to one another. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying all throughout of this. He's saying that if any of this works, you have to learn to submit to one another, but here specifically is how the hierarchy lays out within the family. The husband submits to God, the wife submits to the husband, the children submit to the parents. All right? In order for that to work, submission must take place, but ultimately you're submitting to the Lord. You're submitting to the Lord. Let me say, Pastor Brandon, uh, you know, what exactly does this mean? The Apostle Paul says that in the Lord here is an aspect in which we must understand that when we submit to them, we are submitting them to the Lord. But there is a shift that takes place when it comes to a child's obedience to the parents. I was doing some research this past week, and I read this article. It was, um, I just stopped reading it. And it was basically uh, this person that says, uh, according to the Bible, the Bible says that you must obey your parents, and that never changes. If you're an adult and you're married, you always must obey your parents. I don't know what Bible they were reading, right, but that is not the case. Okay? There is a point in which you move out from underneath the protection of your family. However, the word honor never changes. Honor never changes. Okay, we see that this, adult, this, this adulting takes place. When it comes to this concept of honor, how is this different than obedience? Honor expresses the frame of mind in which obedience proceeds. To honor your parent is to hold your parent in great esteem and high regard. And it is possible as adults to disobey your parents, but yet still honor them. And there's this shift that takes place in a priority when a person becomes an adult, and specifically, even more than that, when a person becomes married. As we examined last week, the Bible says all the way back from the beginning of time, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that when he created Eve, the woman, the Bible says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You are no longer underneath the care and the protection of your mom and dad. You now are underneath the support of your, or, or, or the family unit in which God has established there. But there's this, this thing that takes place in which we must continue to honor our mom and dad. 
Within the realm of marriage, a husband and a wife's responsibility is to support and submit to each other rather than mom and dad. A mom and dad may have a hard time with this, and I probably will too when my kids get old enough. And they may oppose upon the family rules and regulations that would create a rift between the husband and the wife. And maybe you've been there. But to honor your parents would entail consistent respect, but it does not require direct obedience. So you may say to yourself, Pastor Brandon, what do I do if my parents are overbearing? And perhaps those of you that are newly married may deal with this more than those that have been married for a longer period of time. First and foremost, your priority, your number one priority is to your spouse. And if your spouse feels uncomfortable about a situation, don't ever take the side of your parents or anyone else for that matter at the sake of your spouse. That goes against the command when it says to leave and cleave. But how do I honor my mom and dad? Even though, they, they, even though there's a tension that seems to take place, first and foremost, love them continuously and trust that your parents have your best interest in mind. I seriously doubt that there are any parents out there that want your life to be miserable. It's rare, it's few and far between, but I seriously doubt that. Understand that your parents that may come across as being overbearing, overbearing really do have your best interest in mind. And so you love them. You'll never become bitter. You don't ever become uh, upset with them and mad to the point where you just don't take care of it. So the first thing you do is love them continuously. Number two, you continue to cleave to your spouse. You cleave to your spouse and you make decisions for you and your family. And number three, lovingly confront your parents. Lay it all out. Tell them what's bothering you. Don't assume that they know. They may not know anything is bothering you. But lovingly confront them and make sure that you and your spouse are either there together or for sure that you're both on the same page. Because there's nothing worse than being caught in the middle between your parents and your spouse. You don't want to be there. You're literally no man's land at that point, And you don't want to be there. And then finally, number four, never, ever, ever stop honoring your parents. I don't care if your parents are in jail over a crime that they've committed. Don't stop honoring them. doesn't mean you accept their behavior, but you still honor your mom and dad. That is who God has given you to raise you up and to train you as your parents. Paul says that this command comes with a promise. That promise is explained in verse 3. He says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, this is a generalized promise. It doesn't mean that as soon as you or if you continually honor and obey your mom and dad that you will live forever. Uh, there's probably some in this room that have seen kids that have obeyed their parents and have been taken, uh, taken home to heaven early. That's all part of God's sovereign will. But generally speaking, that if you honor and you obey your mom and dad, you will live a fulfilled life, a longer life than those that haven't. Think about those that have disrespected their mom and dad. They're usually ones that have, uh, have committed uh, crimes. They're usually ones that have been caught up in drugs. They're usually ones that are lawbreakers. I can tell you right now that they don't live as long, and their life certainly isn't as fulfilling. But the scriptures say that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So how do we wrap this up here? For children that are still in the home, even if you are 18 and you're still living at home, obey your mom and dad. Obey them. What they tell you to do, they have your best interests in mind. Say, Pastor Brandon, they're not perfect. You cannot understand what they've told me to do. God doesn't say obey them if they're perfect. No one is perfect, but God says obey them. 
even if it doesn't make sense. Unless it's going directly against the word of God, if you don't agree with it, still obey them. But as you become an adult and you move out from the care of your mom and dad and you become married, you still continue to honor them. But your wife or your husband becomes your number one priority at that moment. You still love them. You lovingly confront them over things that you may have issues with, but you still love them and you still honor them. But now let's move on to the second aspect, and that is this number two, the parent-to-child relationship. Paul shifts his focus now to the parents in verse 4. He says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Okay, that term fathers there typically means male, but if we were to look at it in the context of Scripture, he's actually referring to both sets of the parents. He's not just saying just fathers only. He's referring to both of them. And so this command is for both of the mom and the dad. But let's look at first off that command, do not provoke your children to wrath. Within the historical context of Paul's writing, during this pagan world uh, of Paul's day, you had those pagan societies that would, the fathers would have all these set of just harsh, unreasonable demands in which he was this dominating authority over his wife and over his children. And he would go around to them and he would say, what I say will go and what I uh, proclaim will be the truth and you will obey no matter what. And he would become overly bearing, overly strict. And what it would do is it would cause frustration within the family. It would cause frustration within the kids. The Bible says that we ought to obey them as, as, as kids. We listen to them, even though uh, they don't make any sense and they're being completely sinful. But on the same side, he says, parents, don't frustrate your kids. Well, what does that look like? Frustrating your kids. It's making unreasonable demands and not giving them an opportunity to grow and not explaining why you are saying what you are saying from the gospel standpoint. I understand when they're four, they don't understand everything. You don't have to sit there and explain to them why they need to make their bed. But as they grow older and they become more mature in their adult years, you've got to move from the fact that you yelling at them over something that they're doing, but actually explain to them, this is why we don't do what we're doing, and it's because of Christ. What that does is that removes the frustration. They may be frustrated at that moment, but at least you're not provoking them to wrath. You're bringing them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Maybe I can explain it this way. Let's just pretend for a moment that I have a chair here, and there's a marble on top of that chair. Now, I don't want that marble to fall off the chair. And so I set up loving fences around the border of that chair. And so I set up a safeguard. That marble can still move around. That marble can still be who that marble was designed to be. And it can still roll around. But yet I have rules in place to prevent that marble from falling off the side of the chair. And that's what we do as parents. We help our kids understand the basics of obedience so that they can function in the society when they get older. Um, we tell them that they can't. Uh, drive unsafe. We have rules for that because we want to set up loving fences and so that they don't go out. That they can't partner up with a, a boy and a girl alone because honestly, we don't want them to do something that would make a mistake for the rest of their life. Right? We set up loving fences. But the difference between that and then provoking your children is if I was to take that same marble, place it on top of the chair, take my thumb and press on it, not allowing that marble to do anything and continue to press on it, what's going to happen eventually? It's going to shoot out and run away. That's provoking your child to wrath. Yelling at them, berating them, causing them to live with unreasonable expectations. And hounding them when they do make a mistake. There's consequences, but not allowing them to grow through those consequences. 
So let's unpack this a little bit more as parents. How do we properly uh, train our, our children to be able to walk in the way of the Lord? When the Bible says to bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, this type of parenting calls for systematic discipline and instruction. This type of instruction brings your child to the point where they respect the commands of the Lord as the foundation of all life, godliness, and blessing. What verse 4 shows us regarding a parent's relationship of the child is that God is not only concerned with what we do when we do it, when it comes to training our children, but how we do it. How we do it. We don't just say, you're going to do this and then not uh, and go about not giving them any understanding, but also how we train them. We can instruct our children in obedience, but at the same time provoke them to wrath. Yelling, them, yelling at them over an incomplete task is not responding in the correct manner. We must learn to communicate with our children from a gospel-oriented approach. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, how do I do this? My kids are little hellions. How do I do this? As Christian parents, it is important for us to remember that God has called us to function as his agent when it comes to raising our children. God has called us to function as his agent when it comes to raising our children. God's goal for your child is not for you to raise a smart child, an athletic child, a gifted child. That is not God's goal. It is to raise a godly child. But look at what happens if it's our goal to raise an athletic child or a gifted child. That's our goal. It's not what God says. What happens when that becomes our goal? We push them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with pushing. But when God hasn't given them the opportunity to be what we believe they should be according to our goal, we push them even further and we miss the bigger picture. What are we doing? We're provoking our children to wrath. We want them to be a professional athlete. Or we want them to be a doctor. Or we want them to be a politician or whatever, fill in the blank. And maybe they at first want to be that. But you can see signs in their life that God is steering their heart to something else. But we don't want them to go that route because our goal for them is to be this. And so we push them into that mold. And all that's doing is provoking our children to wrath. But not training them up in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. You have to sit back as parents, and myself included. And see that as our children get older, they're going to have certain desires and they're going to have certain callings upon their life in which God is directing them to. And what do we do as parents? We encourage that and we get behind that. If that is what God is calling them to do, I am behind you all the way, son and daughter, and I'm going to encourage you to continue to follow God. But when it comes to parenting, we have to keep this in mind. It is not about conforming them into be something. It's about getting to the heart of the matter. See, let's, think, let's, let's broaden this a little bit more when it comes to behavioral aspects. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The part of effective parenting is to get to the heart of the child when it comes to discipline. Again, our goal is not good children, but godly children. Good children comes when our child conforms to the rules that we have laid out. That's a good child. Okay, you don't do all these things. My child is a good boy because he made his bed when he was supposed to. And so he conformed to all these rules. That's not a godly child. A godly child is one in which their heart has been transformed by the power of the gospel. So what we see in Luke chapter 6 verse 45, it says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good fruit, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil fruit, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so let's say that you have a behavioral issue with your child. Your child 
It's not about the behavior in and of itself that should concern you. It's about the heart in which is, is being overflow regarding that behavior. In other words, what they're doing in their behavior is evidence of what's really going on in their heart. So let me give you an example. Let's say that the classic uh, scenario of your son and your daughter, not that my child have ever had dealt with this, it's like a daily basis. They're fighting over something and they come to you and they say, this is mine, I had it first. And then you ask the question, well, who had it first? And they volunteer and say, we'll give it back to him because he had it first. There's a problem with that type of parenting and I've done it often. See, the problem is we've missed the heart of the issue. We're saying that at that moment, justice is served by the one that has a quicker draw in getting the toy. Rather, what we have to help the child understand is that this desire to want what they have is coming out of this selfish heart to preserve or, or to, to uplift their needs over the need of another person. I understand you have to explain this differently over a three-year-old versus an eight-year-old. But the point is this. When you are dealing with your child, you have to dig a little bit deeper to find something, the truth behind it, and help them understand that this is a violation of God's command rather than just me as a parent trying to make you a good child. I'm trying to be very careful when I share with my family here, but my son is young enough now where I can share these things and you guys would all understand. But not too long ago, my son had an issue with candy. He was completely... Um, like addicted to candy, like sugar, I guess. And so he would always go in there and help himself to a piece of candy. And so we set up a rule. You cannot get a piece of candy unless you ask us. And so he would ask us and then we would tell him no. And then what we noticed that he was doing is he was going into his room and he was sneaking a piece of candy. Okay, he was stealing a piece of candy. And so we set up some roadblocks, and that worked for a few days. And then I, what I realized is that at church and other times, he began to steal even more candy, and he began hiding it. And now I'm concerned. Because he is overlooking the rules, and he's overlooking the punishment, and saying that this piece of candy is greater than the punishment. But clearly what I was saying to him wasn't getting through. And so I was reading this book, and I recommend it to everyone. Matter of fact, I can give you access to the copies of it. It's called Shepherding a, Parent, or Shepherding a Child's Heart by, uh, I think it's David Tripp. And he, he helped me understand in that book that you have to help your child see the gospel impact in what they are doing. So one particular morning after my son had gone through this, I said, uh, son, can you come upstairs? And so Casey and I had a conversation. I said, Casey, do you remember, you remember that time that you prayed with me to receive Christ. And he said, absolutely, Dad. And I said, what did that mean? And he explained to me what salvation was. And now I'm a, a follower of Christ. And so many words is what a six-year-old can explain. I said, buddy, you stealing candy is not only a violation of what we are telling you to do. It is a violation of what God has commanded. That is not what God has called us to do as followers of Christ. We are actually missing the mark, buddy. When we do those things, God commands us not to do it. We are not being the type of followers of Christ that God has commanded us to do. And can I tell you something? By God's grace, my son at that moment, it's like, it's like a light bulb, and I say it's the Holy Spirit, got a hold of his heart, and he no longer stole any more candy. And there's other issues that we're working through, but at least we got that one figured out for the time being. That had nothing to do with me. What I helped him understand through my horribly flawed way as a parent, because I am completely imperfect, was that I'm not as concerned with you disobeying me, although that's a problem. I want you to understand this from a much greater level, from the gospel level. 
And once he understood that, you could see the Holy Spirit working in his heart. And he said, listen, I, I want to be a follower of Christ in which, uh, which God commanded me to be. And so therefore, stealing is a violation of God's command, bigger than my parents' command, and so I'm going to obey. That's how our parenting should be. I'm not going to get into a long conversation this morning about spanking. It's a whole other issue. And unfortunately, today, that is a controversial issue. And it, it shouldn't be if it's done in the right way, because the scriptures do command that. In a godly way. You never hit your child out of anger. That is a sinful way. But the Bible does talk about appropriate spanking. You know what spanking does? It helps them understand that they have violated a command. But a spanking shouldn't just be where you send your child into a room, you spank them and you leave them there and you walk out and you say, don't you ever disobey me again. Spanking should be an opportunity in which it spurs a gospel conversation. You could say something along the lines of, son, I do not want to do this. This is the last thing I want to do. But you have disobeyed a command that mom and dad have given you, and God commands me to discipline you. And so I am to submit to what the Lord requires. And so, son, because I have to obey what God requires, I have to do this for you. What you're doing is you're helping your son understand that you're not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. This is what he has called me as the father to do, and so therefore I'm going to pass it on to you. And so I sell that to say this. You could do a whole series on this. The, the thing to keep in mind as parents is we have to parent our child. We have to approach our child in a gospel-oriented state. Don't just get them to conform to a set of rules. Help them to see the bigger picture as to why they obey as followers of Christ. The Bible says, and I'll close with this, the Bible says that to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Our tendency is to say that if we train our child on the way of the Lord, as they become older, they will automatically become a Christian, and they will walk with the Lord forever. That is not what that verse means. Okay, That does not mean automatic salvation. What it does mean is that you are instilling biblical character and principles into the life of that child, that no matter where they go in life, if they walk away... There's always going to be something in the back of their mind that mom and dad taught me, and that's biblical principles, and they're always going to have that in the back of their mind. And God may use that down the road to draw them ultimately to himself, but at least you've done your job and you've given them biblical principles that's going to bother them for the rest of their life. And that's the Holy Spirit, and that's what God commands us to do.